Alrighty. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Real Professional Podcast. This is episode three. And once again, this is the podcast where air quotes, real professionals interview non-air quotes, real professionals about all aspects of the gaming industry. As always, I am Ted. I'm Jesse. And And today we are joined uh, by our third guest, Remy. Say hello to everyone, Remy. Hey, guys. My name's Remy. It's great to meet you all. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And we'll do a little bit more of a formal introduction when we get into the pod. But, you know, later today we're going to be talking to Aaron Reynolds from Flying Mollusk, who made the game Nevermind. So stick with us and uh, drop that sick beat. everyone hello all you lovely gamers out there uh unfortunately christine cannot be joining us this week but we have a great pinch hitter who i called like 30 minutes ago and was luckily able to join us uh we got remy on the line say hi again remy hey guys what's going on glad to be here yeah yeah actually remy and i go uh way back like to when i first got into like games as more than just something i was doing at two in the morning with wow wow raids uh remy and i actually God, a long time ago, uh, we taught a class at Berkeley together. I remember it like it was yesterday. You're making me feel old, man. <laughs> yeah, I uh, well, I actually do remember it like it was yesterday because for like the, the eight years after that, I was blacked out, so I don't really remember much. But yeah, so for me, it was yesterday. We uh, taught the video games as an artistic medium class at uh, UC Berkeley. That was good times, man. Yeah, yeah, I kind of, I kind of miss it. It was, uh, we, we basically, it was like we taught it like half art history class, half um, video game theory class, and we, it's fun to see a lot of these um, theories popping up now, modern day in like the gaming discussion. But what's interesting is that like with without a like lexicon of terms for gaming discussion, people just come up with ideas that other people have had before and are like, I'm the first one to have this, but. You know, the you can knock academia all you want, but it's it has like a, a real purpose when you're when you're talking about creating a, a common discourse for video game design and theory. I feel like more of this needs to come up too. I mean, academia uh, it, it's kind of in a little bit of a void right now. It's it's not represented kind of anywhere else in the popular gaming media, is it? No, it's in. There's a lot of people that deign themselves to be like video game discussers online, but not a lot of people that are willing to like jump into the the kind of the more critical discourse everyone's like willing to have twitter twitter feuds and like throw up their youtube videos what they think but the actual like kind of academic discourse doesn't really exist but this is a topic best for uh, our offshoot podcast you don't have to masturbate to everything where we will be definitely masturbating to video game academics so we'll we'll follow up with that episode on uh Jesse's uh, side project over here. You're missing the point, man. I'll save up for it. You don't have to masturbate. I thought it. it was like ironic. I thought oh. we were like ironically not. Well, it depends on the day. <laughs> Anyways, uh, yeah, so um, what guy, What games have you guys been playing this week? Still Borderlands. Yeah? It's, uh, it's a long one. It's a lot of fun. It's um, I don't really know what else to bring to the conversation about this one. Yeah, you, you looting and shooting? Looting and shooting. Getting that serotonin rush from picking up a weapon that's going to be obsolete in 20 minutes 
Um, wow, the the, absolute, the weapons last a whole 20 minutes this time? Yeah, it's a real step in the right direction. It's definitely <laughs> better than like um, other rivals such as Destiny, because at least it has character. Like At least it's got an interesting setting and all that. Destiny is like... Destiny was an algorithm. They just plugged in different terms and Bungie crapped out whatever the uh, ticket feeder gave, read them. Yeah, are you talking about Destiny or Anthem, or does it is it even matter? <laughs> are they the, are they not the same game? You know, they just uh, they get a word cloud of like you know Steam Steam like all of, all the Steam comments, and they're like, okay, biggest words, multiplayer, shooter, terrible frame rate, um, <laughs> and they're like, okay, well we're gonna put that all in the game. Yeah, I um I, I I've always liked. So I dislike the Borderlands gameplay style. Like I don't actually like Diablo style games or the the looter shooter like the looter games in general. Um, but I've always like really enjoyed the Borderlands style of humor. So it's glad to see that that's still coming through. About yeah. how much longer until you're done ready to review it? It's a lot less fun by itself, but um, or sorry, it's a lot more fun with with other people. Unfortunately, right now Borderlands. Three has some massive frame rate issues. So if one person uses the uh, the inventory, it turns into a PowerPoint, and <laughs> the the text is microscopic. You have to be like two feet away from the TV, burning your retinas on the already extremely bright colors, uh, just to read like what shitty weapon you picked up and if you should sell it. So. This week I got permanent eye damage, um, and uh, yeah, that's that's what I've been up to. Yeah, you just get ready for more permanent eye damage over time. That's the glamorous life of a video game journalist. How about you, Remy? What have you been playing? In my off time, uh, I've been playing a little bit of Dicey Dungeons, Terry Kavanaugh's new game. Oh yeah, tell us about that. You, you that's that's a game that you've like previously recommended to me, but I have not yet had a chance to check out yet. You know, as far as roguelikes go, it's a very good introduction roguelike, and that's hard to find. Uh, it's hard to find a roguelike that you can give to people who have never played the genre before and say, here, you'll get it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, everything is very simply laid out. It uses dice as all its mechanics, and it's it's kind of amazing how much the game like uses all these dice in different ways. Yeah. Uh, sets you up with a bunch of different characters that all play incredibly differently. Uh, that's one of the, the coolest things about the game is that the gameplay style that you're choosing really depends on each character and they feel nothing alike. You want really high rolls with the warrior or the fighter and you want a lot of dice, little, little dice when you're the rogue. You want to play blackjack when you're the robot. You want to play it more like it's uh, almost like a card-based game when it's the, uh, the jester. It's, it's very cool how it does that. However, the difficulty curve is incredibly frustrating and I'm wondering how much RNG has to deal with that. It's kind of with the game where you're going to be rolling dice and the dice are the rolls that you get but it feels pretty good when you roll the dice that you want. It feels miserable when you get three turns of just rolling absolute shit and then you have to start over again. So how does it compare to something like Hand of Fate where that was really heavily based on like dice rolls and stuff but uh, there was always like some kind of recovery mechanic? You know, there's uh, much less of a recovery mechanic, and there's much less hidden. All the mechanics are right there in front of you where you're allotting dice, Yahtzee-style, into the slots that they go to. Mm -hmm. uh, you can kind of have sort of like an average metagame strategy where you're trying to find things that coordinate together. If you're playing the witch, you want to make sure every dice has like a purpose. 
if you're playing the uh, the rogue or the uh, the fighter, then you want to make sure you're maximizing whether or not you want a lot of dice or big roll or small roll dice. And I will betide anyone who's playing the, the inventor because I feel like that's just not a fun class to play. It's interesting in that it's very simple, the way the game works out, and it's to its benefit. But I also think that there's a... A real negative to that because you can't stretch it out enough to really have like come from behind victory kind of things. Mm-hmm. It just feels like either you're you've got the algorithm pegged and you're getting the dice you need, or random chance has screwed you and there's no no strategizing or no tactizing your way out of a situation. Yeah, I kind of feel that way about Slay the Spire at some points, how you could be going a certain build and it would just like not match up against what you hit. Versus if you had just gone a different path and randomly hit the monsters that you do match up well against. But I think Slay the Spire has come a long way since it first started. Isn't that the hubris of man, though? When RNG is on your side, it's because you're doing fantastically and you've uh, mitigated all the bad elements that could happen. When RNG is not on your side, it's because it's a shit game. Fuck this. Yeah, I feel that way about Underlords a lot. I was playing... Um, actually, you know what? That's I need to take that back because I was playing Underlords last night, which I've, I've been playing at the gym all the time. And uh, I was going up against a dude who had uh, three rank twos at round four, and I was like, "This is this is ridiculous! Like that's actually like it, like it's absurdly hard to do that." And um, I still like wound up winning because I had a, um, a a better like my overall long game plan was better, and I rode the loss bonus chain into a higher economy, and I was like. So there was some stuff I could do. Anyway, I don't want to talk about Underlords for too long, and no yeah. one that doesn't fucking play Underlords knows what we're talking about right None now. None of those words mean anything yeah. to me. Yeah. What other games has Terry Cavanaugh made, you said? Uh, he's made VVVVVV, and he's made oh, Super yeah. Hexagon. Super Hexagon, right. Uh, it's, it's kind of interesting seeing those two games and then seeing Dicey Dungeons, which is this this very polished, I'll have to admit, uh, indie darling kind of like a... Yeah. Uh, looking game for the modern era, where it doesn't have his signature pixel art style, nothing like super digital. Uh, really pretty game. I love the, uh, the little painted style that it has. Now, how much is it? I think it's like $15. It's a fair price. It's a fair price. I would just warn people that uh, it starts off very enjoyable, and then there is a wall of difficulty that is really, really reliant on RNG, yeah. so it can be very frustrating. I mean, if you're buying a game called Dicey Dungeon, you should expect there to be a fair amount of RNG that goes into it. True. I mean, uh, back to your comparison to Hand of Fate. Hand of Fate, sometimes it did not matter because you were just cheesing the mechanics. You were rolling and then you were attacking whatever you were coming up against. Mm-hmm. Uh, with this, you actually do really need to pay attention to all the mechanics. But sometimes the mechanics are not going to work in your favor because you rolled three straight ones. Yeah, yeah. That, make, that makes sense. Um, I, on the other end of the spectrum, have been playing games with very little RNG. Uh, I just finished the Surge 2 review pending for that. Um, Surge 2 was great. I was a decent fan of... So, with the the original The Surge, I was a decent fan of The Surge, but I think that it would be overly generous to call it anything more than, like, a knockoff Dark Souls. I mean, even at its best, it still felt like a B version of Dark Souls. But with The Surge 2, it actually feels like this is a game that legitimately competes with Dark Souls for a slot on like the sliding scale of how good a Souls-like game is. It's, it's the first game since the original Dark Souls that's had that level of interconnected worlds. Like it's the amount of micro shortcuts and macro shortcuts is massive, and it's it it stays consistent throughout the entire game. You'll keep finding ways to shortcut through the game 
up until like the final boss and it's it's like an integral part of their design and i thought that was really fantastic shortcuts kept me hot and bothered <laughs> and another thing that i really like is that they actually removed um the skill level mechanic from weapons so in the surge one uh you would level up each weapon individually so if you had single rigged which was basically the sword uh it, you would level that up up to like level 50 um so if you then found like a two-hander that you wanted to use, it was a huge disadvantage to switch to it. So they took that out of the game entirely. Uh, it still has the dismemberment system. Uh, and I just, I don't know, I, I've, I've really liked this one a whole lot. A lot of the mechanics are a lot more front and center. You can see the status buildup on enemies for um, different stat elemental status damages. It's a lot like Dark Souls, like you'll deal fire damage up until the point where fire will then build into like a debuff. And I honestly, like, I feel like the Surge 2 is such a step in if everything that they did in the Surge 2 was an upgrade. And it's so crazy because we very rarely say that about games nowadays, is that the sequel was, like, strictly better than the original, especially when we're talking about Call of Duty or Assassin's Creed. Like, they remove mechanics, and it's like, oh, I really liked... Like, we haven't seen a good naval simulator since Assassin's Creed 4. And I know why, which is money. Like, it just costs money to create naval battles. Um, did they have it in Odyssey? I can't remember. Um, they didn't have cannons in Odyssey, that's for sure. No, they, ha they had canoes. Which <laughs> canoes. Is, um, you know, <laughs> certainly, uh, certainly trying. But that's kind of the tale of the tape this week for me, is that uh, I've also been playing Greedfall, which is a game created by Spiders. Um, like, literally, the studio's name is Spiders, and I always love saying that in my reviews, that this is a game made by Spiders. And Spiders is a studio known for making uh, like C tier RPGs. Like they're the 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 bad eighties prison ladies in prison movies of RPGs, and uh, they made Bound by Flame and Of Orcs and Men, uh, Mars Warlogs. The most recent was the Technomancer. But what I what I actually love about Spiders is that they have a lot of heart in their games. Like they the story is always very interesting, and you can tell that it was a passion project. And one game builds mechanically into the next so their first was uh actually it was like this fairy game that i can't even remember but their first was of orcs and men and then you saw that build over time into like better and better rpgs bound by flame was starting to look like a real rpg and now with greedfall i mean i could i would other than the kind of wonky facial design that's kind of indicative of games that are created in france because they're they're trying to localize for a bunch of different regions, so the mouth movements just never work right. I, I think that you could play Greedfall and like be genuinely like this was probably a game made by Bioware or something. And yeah, I'm I'm pretty impressed with it so far. I haven't gotten past like seven hours into it because uh, the Surge Two was like a 45 hour game. It was like pretty nuts. Uh, but yeah, I've been really enjoying it so far, and I, I love seeing. That's why I really like following smaller indie studios. Um, or kind of B-tier indie studios, you know, not the 10-person the team, but like the 30-person the team, uh, because you can actually see them growing and developing their craft over time. And I, I just think that that's a really fun thing to do. Anyways, anyone else have any uh, uh, anything else they want to talk about before we get into our discussion topic for the week? Any games they've been playing? No? Nope. We're ready to uh, move on then. All right. Get ready for some news, 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 news. Drop that sick news beat. Hopefully my editor is doing his job.
And it's been a pretty weak week for news because uh, TGS just happened, so not a lot's coming out. I mean, we got the Last of Us 3 announcement that's going to be happening at the State of Play tomorrow. Sorry, Last of Us 2, not 3. Um, that's going to be happening at the State of Play tomorrow. And so I was kind of looking around for, for news, and I found two articles that kind of led me to our topic for the week. So the first article was about Control. Everyone here familiar with the game Control? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah, so I, I reviewed it. You can find uh, my review for it on Dread XP. I thought it was great. Secret sequel to Alan Wake. Love the fact that they're trying to create an extended world with that. The news came out that Epic had paid for exclusivity on Control. As we all know, Epic is evil and the bad guy and the, the dark lord of the, the gaming world, of course. It's going to destroy everything we know and love. They created the darkest evil known to man, Fortnite. Fortnite, yes. We'll, we'll get into that in a moment, but that they paid for their exclusivity to the tune of 9.5 million euros, uh, which translates to about 100, sorry, not 100, 10.5 million dollars. Um, now, some interesting notes about this is that this is not a flat payment, it's like a, a royalties payment. So basically, it's a guarantee on sales. So once the game makes over uh, $9 million, that will be paid back, sorry, over $10 million, that will be paid back to Epic. And then uh, Remedy slash 505 Games, which was the publisher, will make the rest of the money after that. So it's basically just like if the game doesn't sell at all, you have this guarantee on sales, which is something that uh, record companies do a lot when they're paying out musicians. Uh, and then another article was about Borderlands 3, which, as we all know, based on the hullabaloo on the internet, was a on the PC and Epic Store exclusive. The article's tone was, how much has the Epic Store exclusivity affected PC game sales? And the answer was, it basically hasn't. So after all that sound and fury, all the review bombings and the boycotts, it still turns out that Borderlands 3 has twice as many concurrent players at launch of, on the Epic Store than it ever did on Steam, even at the peak of Borderlands 2 play. Uh, and then another interesting tidbit is that Metro Exodus on the Epic Game Store sold two and a half times more copies than Last Light did. And yeah, so it turns out that all of this giant mess that people were going to create, they were going to go out with their pitchforks and torches and burn down Epic because they were encroaching on the, the hallowed territory, the manifest destiny of their precious steam has not really translated into actual sales. Well, it should still be burned down, regardless. Why? Uh, Fortnite. Mm. Yeah, so actually, this is the topic I want to discuss. So first off, I want to know what your guys' opinion is on the Epic Store versus Steam. And uh, why? then a larger discussion of why this has become such a conversation piece. So I guess I should do a little bit more of a briefing in case our listeners don't know what we're talking about, like they're filthy casual console gamers or something. Essentially right now online, there is one digital retailer, and that is Steam. There have been a number of smaller digital retailers, but almost all of them redeem to Steam. If you buy a game on the Humble Game Store, you get a code to redeem it on Steam. Uh, the only I know that there was one digital retailer called uh, Gamersgate, which was horribly... Uh, that's just a very unfortunate name. 
And it kind of went under when Gamergate happened. It was a company that existed before the Gamergate scandal. So that's, uh, that's unfortunate for them. But even all these other retailers distribute Steam keys. So if you want a game, it's, it's going on Steam. Now, recently, uh, another distributor has thrown its hat into the ring, and that would be Epic Games, the, the developer slash publisher came out with the Epic Game Store. Originally, very similar to Steam, it originally was just a place to host uh, Epic Games properties, so like Fortnite um, and the other version of Fortnite. But it then evolved into a marketplace where you could buy other games. And uh, the community in general kind of revolted against this because Epic started acquiring exclusive rights to a number of games for timed exclusivity, so one-year exclusivity on the Epic Game Store. So right now, if you want to play Borderlands 3 on the PC, you have to play it on the Epic Game Store. If you want to play Control on the PC, you have to play it on the Epic Game Store. Uh, and everyone hates it because they like their Steam friends list, they like Steam, and they don't want things to change. So that's that's the briefing of it. So do any of you guys have initial opinions on Epic versus Steam? Well, this isn't the first time that they've had, like, Exclusive games, like, you know, uh, there's a Blizzard service, Blizzard Live, Blizzard Net. Battle.net. Battle.net, for, uh, you know, for people who still want to play Diablo 2 with all their friends. But Epic is the first one that seems to be able to compete with Steam. For the consumer, it's really not a huge difference. Like, you know, who gives a shit if you have to add, if you have to download another uh, 50 megabyte software to launch a game like it doesn't really matter i really don't know like i'm not even that sure myself why there's such a like uproar over epic games having exclusives because that's something that's just been a part of games forever different Mm -hmm. consoles have different exclusives um i guess it's because no, I, I get it. It's it's the question is, why is there such a hullabaloo? Remy, you have any uh, thoughts on that? I, I think that there's a hullabaloo because people online are loud. And as you've stated, uh, market forces have not gone that way. Uh, people can complain about this stuff, but Epic is trying something kind of new. There have been other competitors to Steam in the past, sure. But like you said, they kind of integrate themselves or assimilate into just offering Steam codes. And Epic is trying to uh, match them. The way they're trying to match them is offering developers exclusive deals that have either uh, uh, better cost-sharing deals, they're uh, offering uh, these sort of safety nets to developers, they're offering uh, better bonuses. So if developers decide that that's in their best interest in order to follow through with that, that's great for them. If consumers then reward them for doing that, then that's great for consumers. Uh, They're obviously getting a product that they like and enjoy. The whole review bombing thing with Borderlands, I heard about that. I mean, in some ironic way, doesn't that show the point of how Steam is dropping the ball on this so hard, where a bunch of people just mob all these old games uh, because they want to review bomb it? Isn't that them exploiting the system? At that point, I figure, man, I hope Epic Store doesn't have a reviews for like any users, because... If it can be exploited like this, then it's obviously useless. Why would a, a company want to put their game on a a, a a service like that? Keep in mind, my game's going to be on Steam. We've not been approached <laughs> by Epic to uh, to put Class from Aquatic on there. Yeah. So okay, let's let's 
So you said a few things there. So first off, I would like to give credence to Steam. They have actually uh, taken efforts to stop review bombing and to remove reviews that are review bomb reviews. Um, and that is, it is nice of them to do that, especially because the only person benefiting, well, not the only person, but the primary benefit of that is for the Epic Game Store. Like them removing review bombs on their service to counteract this negativity towards another service is something that they really don't have to do. So I will say that like, I will give props and kudos to them for taking those steps. Hey, why, why did they have to do that? Because the Epic Store exists? Oh, well, I, I guess competition is making sure that Valve is improving the Steam experience. Why is competition bad in this case? <laughs> yeah. Okay, that's pretty true. So it's really like insane because it's like the same amount of warring but it's over, like, instead of, like, a cult of personality, it's a cult of some shitty software that you got to use to play your, your, like, another software. Y it's yeah. insane. Like, I don't know why these people have such loyalty to Gabe Newell, who obviously has incredible disdain for the people that made him a billionaire because he hasn't released a game in, like, 15 years. And, and honestly, he should hate the subhuman gamers who uh, gave him his wealth. Because every time he sneezes, they're like, oh, he sneezed for three seconds. That means Half-Life 3 is coming out. Even though he said every day of his goddamn life, Half-Life 3 is never coming out. We're not doing it. I don't know. I don't know why gamers are so insane. Yeah, and I... I the, Myself especially. <laughs> why are gamers so insane is, is a good question. And here's the thing is that um, That's our I third actually... Podcast. What? That's our third podcast. Why are gamers? Why are so gamers insane? so insane? Yeah, that that's a great title. We should we should definitely use that for something. But uh, no, I and I, I I should come kind of full disclosure here. We've so far been leaning on the side of why is everyone freaking out about this? But when it first happened, like I was a pro Steam guy, and I was a pro Steam guy right up until I downloaded the Epic Game Store. Actually, I I didn't even like the Epic Game Store when I first downloaded it because there's some functionality on it, reduced functionality that I would really prefer to have. I learned some stuff about the Epic Game Store that has really shifted my opinion. So first off, we should really just like, to be fair, list the features that each of them has, which is, you know, Steam does, if you're just looking at a pure number of feature standpoint, Steve has, Steam has far more features than the Epic Game Store. They have cloud saves, um, user profiles, user reviews, their forums, they have the Steam Workshop, uh, they have the ability to broadcast and to capture screenshots. That's actually one that's really annoying for me on Epic Game Store is that there's no button to capture screenshots because I'm trying to capture screenshots for review purposes and stuff. Um, they have wish lists. When they first started, they didn't even have like a search function for their store because they only had like 20 games on their store. So yeah, down. Why yeah. do you need a search well, now, now they have a search function. Now they have uh, some more stuff. I was actually checking out the store before this just to see what they have. They have a Unreal Asset store, so you can buy Unreal Assets if you're making games in the Unreal Engine. And, you know, these are all stuff that are, are cool, but, you know, there's there's all these functionalities that Steam has that I've very rarely seen used, like the, the big picture mode, which is, allows you to use Steam on your TV or the family sharing plan. I know each of those programs, respectively, I know, like, one person that uses them. And I think that these are functionalities that cater to hardcore gamers and i think that that's something that we have to keep in mind we're talking about why people are so fervent with steam is that it, it definitely seems that steam caters to the hardcore 
gamer market. And we also have to realize that Steam create, basically created the digital distribution model. I mean, it existed before, but Steam's the one that really made it. And that Steam sales are still legendary in the gaming community for your ability to get 500 games for, you know, 50 bucks. It's like the 90% Not sales. Not even anymore. I mean, before it was major, major sales, and now it's like, oh, get 10% off your favorite games. No, I think that there's still pretty big sales on the Steam store. and yeah, um, it's, all like, it's like the least popular, poorest selling games, it seems like. There's, <laughs> there hasn't been anything good. Then again, I already bought all of the games I wanted yeah. on previous Steam sales, so maybe I'm a little biased. Yeah. Anyways. I don't know if, if all these things are a real tip of the hats. I mean, they... They serve a function, sure, but whether or not you got to bow down to Gabe Newell because he invented Steam Summer Sales, I, I don't know. Uh, there's there's plenty of room for argument for a lot of this stuff. Steam Summer Sales, exactly. I've heard a lot of people complain that they have to overprice their games because what they're really selling it for is the sales price. Because yeah. no one in their right mind buys a game full price unless it's a AAA budget game. If you are the people who really care about that, you just put it on your wish list and you wait until some sale happens and then you buy it for the reduced price. Uh, I don't know. Uh, the 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 way Valve has approached Steam has been kind of a weird hands-off, throw it at the wall, see if it sticks model. I don't know if you can criticize anyone saying that like because Epic doesn't have the equivalent of a big picture mode, that means that there's room for a debate on this. Discord has almost no features compared to, say, Skype. And I think that many people would prefer Discord for its its just it worksitude. Well, Discord has like the the kind of the forum aspect where you can kind of have these constant like multi-channel chat chats going on. And um, but yeah, I, I see what you're saying is that there seems to be a certain kind of benefit to marketing your product as quote for gamers. And I think that Steam for a very long time has always had that gamer centric view. And I don't necessarily think it's been been healthy. And um certainly not. Anything anything other than anything that you put for gamers on, like gamer mouse, gamer uh game computer case, that just means you can up the price fifty percent. Yeah. Like don't even get me started on gamer pillows. Gamer gamer fuel. <laughs> gamer fuel. Yeah. But Just uh, call them crackers. Chairs. I mean, when do when did desk chairs need to be race cars? Yeah. Okay. I got I got one of those I got one of those race car chairs and it's fucking awesome. I need so. my I need my chair to be more aerodynamic so that when I'm playing Rocket League I go faster. When I got my first ever bonus uh, from work, I was like, I'm gonna buy myself a nice gamer chair. It was that's, totally worth it. That's depressing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's 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 sad because just the reason I had to buy it was my previous gallons of ass sweat had eaten through the leather on the previous chair. And the gamer chairs are made with an ass sweat resistant coating, so you can just they, wipe they it off. They know after. their gamers well. Yeah, they know their gamers very well. Yeah. It's it's both resistant to ass sweat and Mountain Dew. So, but uh, it's like those Japanese toilets, and like a like a little cool water flows through <laughs> the seat cushions, and um, it has a little like scrub brush for your neck beard. Yeah, it's got a hot pocket holder. Yeah. It's pretty nice. It keeps your pockets hot. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, it's funny because if I go on a three-day like gaming bender, which I have to do all the time for work now, I will go into the bathroom and realize my neck beard has been growing longer than the rest of my face. It's, it it's grows nice. at a faster rate yeah. during a gaming binge. Yeah. Like, it probably has to do with the radioactive, like it's like a, like a, like a sunlight like reaching to the bottom of my chin it's like uh, the reflection off the bottom of my desk is just helping it grow 
photosynthesis yeah. from your computer. <laughs> the radiation from my, because I, I have an, op of course I have like an open case so that I can vent better. It's probably like the heat from my, my graphics cards, my, my double X1080 G G GTIs uh, with a SLI bridge wafting onto my chin, helping the, the chin hair grow. I like the idea of you during like a, um, like a long gaming binge, you taking the uh, computer duster, huffing it into your mouth, and then blowing it into the computer like that guy from Mad Max Fury Road, <laughs> blowing gas into the engine to make it go faster. <laughs> Just yeah, that's that's basically how I do it. It's it's a pretty hardcore experience. Uh, you should witness me sometime on our stream. I don't even know if our streams up yet. We need to figure that out. Anyways, but uh, yeah. So the point I was making is that like Steam for a long time has like very obviously catered to gamers, and this has kind of been. <sighs> Something that's consistent throughout their their business history is that they've made decisions based on the the gamer market. Whereas so often the perception of gaming companies is that they're making things for themselves. Like um, we don't really think that the newest Call of Duty is made for the audience. We think that the newest Call of Duty is made for for profit, and that's like a really silly mindset. But it's I think very pervasive in the gaming community and Steam through their sales through their kind of liberal laissez-faire approach to what gets published on the store. They now have porn on the store, which is, you know, their thing. And uh, they also had like a Steam Greenlight system where it's, hey, let's try to give indie gamers. So they've, they've tried to come up with programs that are things that I like. To me, those some of those programs seem even lazier. Like the Greenlight program, that's just like, yeah, well, you know, whatever. We don't need to vent, vet them. If you want to get... I don't know. Some... I feel like these decisions can be motivated as we're doing it for... For gamers or for our demographic, I mean, yeah, the green light system wasn't that just them saying we're overloaded and overflooded with submissions, so we're gonna hand it off to you guys. I mean, that's that's a business decision, isn't it? I totally agree, and I think that most decisions that seem as community oriented are normally business decisions. I'm just saying that this is the common perception that most gamers have, which is why it's my attempt to explain the fervent fan base, you know. Mm. And I uh, yeah, I, I just think that um. I mean, if you're going to talk about Greenlight, we have to talk about how Valve even treats their own intellectual properties. Have any either of you heard of this Hunt Down the Freeman game? Have you ever seen it? Oh, disgusting. Yeah, it's like yeah, a... That was so sad to read about. But it's it's selling on the Steam store for money using their IP, which is cool, I guess. But at the same time, it's just the biggest, like, throwing up their hands. You can do whatever you want. We're never making Half-Life 3. I mean, if you want evidence that Half-Life 3 is never happening... You can make a Half-Life mod and sell it now and say it's like a story in the Half-Life universe. And that's like textbook not defending your intellectual property. That's like literally, if you're going to like legally get into it, like grounds to say you no longer own the IP. That's prostituting your own IP. It's not even prostituting. It's it's like literally if, if someone wants to say, I'm going to make Half-Life 3 now, like they're going to have a strong case to be able to do so because Valve hasn't defended their own intellectual property. But that's like a whole other discussion and... I just want to say that, like, with the Epic Game Store versus Steam, I we there's definitely a perception that Steam has been a platform that caters to gamers from a gamer-focused perspective, and that this Epic Store is bad because it doesn't think about the consumer first. And this is actually an opinion that I heard at E3 from one of my friends who shall remain nameless because saying it in a vacuum sounds bad, but we were talking about... So the big the big reason that people 
the the I switched over to the side of the epic is good and not bad is the profit split. So Steam takes like thirty five percent of whatever you sell because it can, and Epic only takes twelve, which translates into more sales, uh, more money per sale for the developer, which is a good deal for the developer. And me as a gamer want developers to make more money so they can make more games. And also this whole thing about, you know, there's this tone that, oh, isn't Remedy greedy for wanting this 9.5 million euro guarantee? That's actually like just really good business. And if it makes them more financially solvent and then able, like if they have this guarantee on sales, then they probably were able to take the time to finish their game. I mean, that 9.5 million guarantee translates over into increased development time so the game comes out less buggy so that they don't run out of budget. Like, these are all good things. These are things that we should like. But as I said, I was talking to one of my friends at E3 about this, and he said, I don't care about the developers. I want my user experience to be easier. He literally said that. He's like, I don't give a shit if the developers get more money. I don't care about them. And that's and that's this weird, pervasive gamer mindset of, these, the people making my games are doing it to cater to me. I'm what matters. And I don't care that there's people behind making these games. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call them horrible things on forums because I don't think that they're humans. And as I, I just want everything to be catered and tailored specifically towards me. And even the, the audacity of making someone download a new client to play their games is like a fundamental affront to their, their gamer identity. The bitter irony of a gamer saying, considering game developers not human, is that gamers themselves are not human. They're nothing but dogs. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if anyone should consider me a human. I do play Total War for 60 hours a week. No, we're both kind of like weird homunculi. <laughs> um, you know, we live under, under people's houses and steal their Wi-Fi. <laughs> and that's how we make our money. Yeah. Um, but... Remy, you have anything I don't know. It's... It's, it's all just going to break down into whether or not it works and whether or not it doesn't. Uh, Discord had their kind of like a digital distribution platform that they tried for a while. That didn't work out. Epic seems to still be investing a lot into it, and maybe they're doing strong. I don't know their, their profit margins on the platform as a whole. If people don't like it, they won't use it. Uh, if people do like it, they will use it. Forum posts and stuff like that, that can kind of scratch the surface at some sort of narrative that's going on, but... Otherwise, it's money that talks. Uh, so yeah, how loud these people are and how much of a, a fit they can throw on a forum, I, I don't know. It, it sounds like the same kind of system that, or same kind of situation that happened when like uh, Call of Duty didn't have dedicated servers and people just called for a boycott of that game. Uh, all that, all these kind of like calls for boycotts. Uh, DRM on Bioshock, they wanted to boycott that. That didn't work out. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't get it. Uh, none of this ever seems to translate, and yet it always seems to take up headline space. Yeah, it's it's kind of like the youth vote. Everyone talks about the youth vote. Youth vote never happens. Until Bernie Sanders runs, and then everyone's going to vote for him. Didn't the youth vote come out a lot for Obama, though? Like, Wasn't that a thing? More or less. Like, I don't know if it was the thing. Like 25 <laughs> to 35, more so than like... 18 to 25. Yeah, yeah. No, but I mean, I think that the they, they just need to Pokemon Go to the polls, because that's how you appeal to the youth, is you make a Pokemon Go reference. I'm just I, Like, even just saying that right now made everyone shut up, because it's just so bad, even coming from my mouth. Okay. 
going back to what you said about um, not wanting the developers to get money to improve their games, but instead choosing to have a more streamlined experience for the software that they use that they have to click on, that they are forced to click on to open up an entirely different software. It's such a fucking stupid way to think about it because you're giving yourself an even worse user experience by preventing the developers from having the funding to get rid of the bugs and stuff and instead needing to rush out a game, which I recognize is often more so on the publisher's end than the developer's end. But all the same, stepping over dollars to get a dime, except it's for your own gaming experience. Yeah. And to that I say, you don't deserve gaming good gaming experience, you little <laughs> yeah. pieces of shit. And I do want to be balanced here, though, because I, when I first started having to use the Epic Store, it was at a time where I was also reviewing Fallout 76 and a number of other games on different clients, and it seemed like I had to have a different client for everything I wanted to do. Like, I had to have Battle.net to play Heroes of the Storm. I had to have uh, the Bethesda.net client to play Fallout 76. I had to have Epic Store to play this, and I was like, oh, there's just too many clients. This is ridiculous. Um, but at the same time, like, that's just me being a whiny, like, whiny man baby. Like, I, and I know that I can be a whiny man baby from time to time when I'm talking about my, my love, my heart, my soul video games. And what I think is, though, is that, like, what Remy was talking about with market, that the, the, the actual dollars will speak, there will always be, like, a small percentage of people that are incredibly furious about some feature being missing. But at the end of the day, if that's just, like, 1% of the market, the overall dollars are going to show that gamers don't care about certain features and they care more about other things. So even this entire idea of a gaming-focused platform, even as I was saying, Steam being more, quote, gamer-focused, might not even be true because it might only be focused towards a very small percentage of gamers. I know most people open the Steam store. Even I open the Steam store and I'm like, oh, there's 15 new games today. This is a bit of an overload. If you ever try to just go into the Steam new release tab, like not popular new releases, just new releases, it's fucking impossible to find something you like. Um, and, and It's also because there's just not a lot of like standards for games being released. You can kind of just release anything. Yeah, I mean... There's a zillion Unity asset flips that get released every day. Yeah, and they, you know, they must continue to make money, otherwise they wouldn't keep shitting them out. Yeah, well, because it doesn't cost anything to make a Unity asset flip. But anyways, um, the, the, but the thing is, is that the question has always been, will Epic be able to someday match Steam? It's always like, Epic's been the underdog and Steam is the big monolith. But with these sales, I understand that the, the, the marketplace has changed a lot since Borderlands 2 and Metro Last Light released. But are we seeing the case where they actually sell more? Like, that was never even a question on anyone's lips, was, is Epic going to sell more? And this question of developer split is something that we as the market really have to ask ourselves if we're willing to deal with not being able to take screenshots, if we're willing to be able to deal with not broadcasting, if it means that we get more money to the people that are making our games. And then, of course, there's the question of this idea that if a gaming company makes money, it's therefore greedy. Borderlands, oh, Randy Pitchford is so greedy for wanting his game to make money. He's well, doing this for greed. There's more to it than that. Yeah, like, what, you think he just took the $13 million that Borderlands got guaranteed and, like, just bought a boat? Like, what do you... This, like, it takes didn't, money to make games. How much do you think it fucking costs to make Borderlands 3? Didn't he take, like, three, 
three quarters of the money that Gearbox had and made Battleborn. Well, that's but he's not taking the money and like buying cocaine with it. He's like taking the money and making a game with it. I would honestly rather him take know, like, the money and buy cocaine. Was that a jab at like them making a new game and then putting it on the market and seeing if it works? I, I can tell you right now, around 2016-2017, uh, gaming companies were making record profits. Record profits. They were blowing, blowing banks' lids off. And then they cut design. You know what they really cut design for is because they don't want exploration. They don't want new game titles because they had a sense that IP was the thing that they needed to invest in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, they made Battleborn, and it sucked. You know what the the market then decided? They decided, oh, we're just going to keep on making the same shit that we've always made because it's not profitable to to make something new. It's too much of a risk. It's too much of a liability. That's no, you don't, don't chastise a, a company for making a game that doesn't turn out well. Uh, yeah, maybe design decisions were bad. Maybe production went wrong. Maybe they, they had a million things go wrong. Who knows? Maybe it was just the wrong game for the wrong time in the wrong place. But if you're telling me fuck a company because they took a chance on something, no, that's that's totally unfair. Well, and that's the thing too is that uh, along that point is that the Epic Store is actually giving exclusivity to indie titles that normally couldn't get exclusivity deals. Like to us on the on the consumer side, it's like, "Oh, this is only going to be here." But that kind of like exclusive rights to certain platforms is like something that normally doesn't go to small titles and that kind of like the fact that you can get a guarantee on sales is really, really, really useful to these small indie developers. I mean, I didn't like Close to the Sun, but there's no way that I even would have known that that game existed if it wasn't on the Epic Game Store. Like, there's so many titles that I, like Ooblets, I I wouldn't know that Ooblets existed if not for the Epic Game Store. So when you're talking about games that like take chances and indie studios trying new things, like first off the increased, like the, the increased profit share, but also the guarantee, like there's so much more incentive to be on the Epic Game Store. And I know, uh, a lot of indie developers myself that have been working on their games for some time that are saying, you know, if we didn't sign with Steam years ago, if Epic existed back then, we probably would have gone with them. They just seem like the better deal. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, anyways, I, I don't want to spend uh, another four hours talking about the Epic Games. Store. And this is one of those interminable discussions that it seems to be that there's people very passionate about certain features that Steam has and wants epic to have them and i agree with them and i also agree that having 40 different storefronts that i need to open to play games is dumb and i also like steam for a lot of the functionality i'm playing a game on steam right now for review and i'm taking screenshots and it's great and it's not like i don't like steam i just think that the increased competition of the epic game store is a good thing and that if your main complaint about the epic game store is that you have to download a new client which is really the only complaint for the consumer side to download a new client and re-add your friends list, I, I, I you really should take another like hard look at your your priorities in gaming because if it means that you get more games from developers, like I don't really see the huge problem here. It's just a click to launch the client, and it's not it's not like the client like there's some security issues with with Epic Store, and I don't want to brush over that, but you know. If you think that like your Steam account can't get hacked, you're a fucking idiot. Ted. Not, not to mention, if if people don't want to do that, then don't. Those you, are... you are a demographic that is not being represented in the what 4.2 million sales of uh, Metro last light or something like that. Yeah. All right. If they're having a, a meeting in in their internal boardrooms 
and they discuss how they can maximize sales figure and and your demographic of the people who do not want to click the epic game stores is brought up as important enough then then they'll cater you and if it's not then just don't play it <laughs> i would i would love to play uh the uh what what is that game on the ubisoft launcher first person shooter uh the division <clears throat> not no. division first person shooter are you talking about rainbow six siege yeah, I would have loved to play Siege, except be, I did not want to download the Ubisoft launcher. And also the time to kill was not that great. Isn't, it, you know on, isn't it on Steam? Yeah, but it launches the launcher. Oh, um, rough, man. You know, but you know what? I'm not, I'm not going to picket uh, Ubisoft for that. I'm not going to go to the developer studio and then review bomb them. I just will not play the game. I will live my life happy and contented with other games that I would enjoy playing. There, I don't have the Epic Game Store launcher open because it doesn't have games I want. It's not a moral quandary for me. If you guys are really that passionate about it, then I guess all your pleas will, will go to some automated bot that will send you an email saying, thanks so much for writing for us. But I just don't see all this energy and effort amounting to anything if the dollars don't make sense. Yeah, no, that's, that's kind of the bottom line. Jesse, did you have anything to add there? I lost my train of thought. Something about how um, saving time, you know, I'm speedrunning my life, and so spending that extra precious minute to take a click is a time uh, <laughs> wasted. Same with uh, all the time I waste, I could be wasting brushing my teeth and wiping my ass. Yeah, see, you're trying to speedrun maximum depression, no suicide run? <laughs> well, more so the former than the latter. <laughs> Anyways, yeah, it's gonna take me time to download the launcher, but I've got plenty of time to go into forums and review bomb them because yeah. of this. So I'm really looking forward to all the great comments that we're gonna get on this week's episode, where people call us fucking epic shills, and Epic gives me no money to talk about this. I just, I don't know. I, I, I am personally someone who, like I said at the start of this, used to hate Epic Store because I wanted everything to be on Steam. Because every time I add a Steam game to my library, like my EP grows just a little bit. I was at like 1,500 games, and now I'm at like 1,600, and I just feel better than you. And I just want to keep feeling better than you. And How many of you have played? Like seven. No, I've played a lot more than that, but uh, I think my percentage is at like, I don't know. 17%. But this this kind of this kind of d- debate will only grow and the market's going to shift with time and I think that anytime there is a market shift people are going to feel the friction of that regardless of the fact that there's no real reason to feel the friction of this because it is a digital store. Digital distribution now accounts for 80% of all game sales. PC game sales are 28% of all sales. I think the biggest market is still um, mobile games at like 36% and then console games are uh, bigger than PC games at like 30%. Which Mobile games, that's a real target we should be unifying against. There's mobile games, yeah. We should all be, be fight, rallying against Rage Shadow Legends. we got to do an episode where you just talk about the... the Microtransactions? The depths of the abyss of that. What was that oh, game? Rage Shadow Legends, yeah. Rage Shadow Legends and just the 18 different types of... of currency, fake yeah. Fake currency that you got to pay real money to buy different forms of fake currency to just play the game. Yeah, no, it, it was like the real-life version of that dream where you're in school and you don't know where your pencil is and you're naked and there's a test and it's in, like, another language. That was like playing Raid Shadow Legends. Is that same depth of confusion and complete despair. Anyways, so speaking of indie developers, we're going to uh, go ahead and get into our interview here real quick. We've talked enough about the Epic Game Store. So uh, pretty soon we'll be having Aaron Reynolds on from Flying Mollusk to talk about Nevermind. 
So go ahead and stay tuned, and we'll be back after this sick beat. Drop the beat. Guys, I'm here with Aaron Reynolds from Flying Mollusk, who made never mind. Say hi to everyone, Aaron. Hey, everyone. Yeah, welcome. So, uh, yeah, this is pretty cool. With we the first week podcast, we had Blair Witch on, and then last week we had Mage Quit. So it's cool to be getting back into an indie horror game. And uh, yeah, your game released in 2015, so it's been out for a little while now. And uh, how's it how's it been since release? Yeah, it's it's been great. You know, we first started making Nevermind, uh, we, you know, we weren't even sure if anyone would be interested at all in this bizarre project that uses biofeedback and um, deals with narratives um, that, that uh, instead is psychological trauma, you know, and, and has this ambitious ambition to be, uh, you know, an entertaining game, we hope, uh, but also a game that helps people, um, and this is all stuff we can talk about um, in more depth, but um, you know, it's sort of kind of a, a big risk when we first went into it. And the fact that people are playing it, people seem to be enjoying it, we get lots of um, great feedback from players about their experiences with it is um, really encouraging, really heartening. Um, you know, we're, we're uh, so excited to have had the opportunity to make it. Um, and uh, you know, it's uh, yeah, it's been it's been great. Yeah, you brought up like 15 of my talking points there in that sentence. So, um, <laughs> yeah, um, I, I, I want to start, though, with the kind of the inception of Nevermind. So it started as like a USC project uh, for the School of Game Design, and then it evolved into you releasing it as like a full retail title. So like, walk us through that process. Walk us through coming up with the idea in school, making the decision to turn it into a full game, founding Flying Mollusk, all that stuff. Absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, I guess um, to back up just even a little bit before, never mind. Um, you know, I've been making games for about 15 years now. And, um, you know, a few years into my career when I first started, I realized that I was really passionate about games that get back games for good, positive games. Um, there's a lot of terms for it. Um, but basically, games that are really fun, but you also gain something for it. And I think one of the best examples out there is uh, maybe Oregon Trail which I'm finding fewer and fewer people grew up with, which makes me feel incredibly old. Um, but, um, you know, it's a great example of a game that, like, back in the day, um, you know, you would play and, and, and have fun, and it would be a treat to, to get to play it in, in school. And um, But you also would learn all about the Oregon Trail. Like, there's a whole generation of people who know what dysentery is, and there's really no reason why anyone should know what dysentery is, but we all know it because we played Oregon Trail. And well, I think I that's kind of amazing. I know it because I keep drinking out of the, the gutters. Okay, well, in that case, it's uh, absolutely appropriate for you to know what dysentery is, and you should stop drinking out of the gutters. <laughs> um, but so I think games have this incredible capacity to to um, you know uh, not only be incredibly fun. You know, I grew up playing games, and you know, I could play games before I could read and write, um, but also to have this incredible impact on players. So. Um, I took a sabbatical from making games to go to USE and their interactive media and games um, program to study games for good. And it's a three years, three-year master's program. And at the beginning of that, I um, 
uh, you know, my first year there, I took on this project where it was uh, it was kind of around like exercise and helping children develop a healthy relationship with um, eating well and, and exercising. And um, you know, in the game, we we prompt the player to do push-ups or do um, you know basic physical activity. And we're like, gosh, if if there only there were a way that we could have the game uh, know if the player was actually performing these tasks, really kind of validate it, you know, instead of saying like, you know, do a bunch of push-ups and you'll, you know, gain these points. And then the player's like, yeah, no, I'm totally doing push-ups. And they go, I'm sandwich and come back. Like, is there a way that we can kind of assess that? And so we started looking into biofeedback at that point in time, like having some way for the, the game to know what's going on with the player. Um, at that point in time, it was around uh, 2009, um, the technology just wasn't there, both on the sensor side and the game engine side. Um, so I thought it was a neat idea, but we just couldn't make it happen. Um, but at the end of my master's program, your, your last year there is a um, thesis project um, year where you have a full academic year to work on any game project that you'd like. And so going into that, I, I knew that I wanted to make a game that gave back to players, that benefited players somehow. Um, I wanted to try the biofeedback angle again because I was really interested in the possibilities. But, um, you know, and, and I thought with a couple of years having passed, maybe the technology had advanced just enough for us to make something work this time around. So let's give it another shot. And I also really wanted to make a horror game um, because I love that genre and aesthetic. But, um, you know, prior to going to school, I'd worked at Disney and, you know, I, I just hadn't had a lot of opportunities to make a horror game mm -hmm. um, going up into that. So I really wanted to use it as an opportunity to, to try that. And so those three things kind of came together to form what Nevermind eventually evolved into. Um, and uh, I, I should say, like, so as a brief recap, so Nevermind is this biofeedback enhancement of thriller game. Um, and, and basically the idea behind it is... Um, you know, you, you play as this uh, neuroprober, which is sort of like a psychologist of the not-too-distant future who goes inside the minds of um, their clients. And, and the clients um, are individuals who experienced um, an extreme traumatic scenario at some point in their lives and have repressed the memories of what happened to them. And as a result, because they can't remember what happened to them, or in some cases that something happened even at all, um, they've been unable to sort of work through um, that trauma and properly process it. So you have to go inside their minds and figure out the, the mystery of what that trauma story was. And once you, you know, put together the puzzle pieces, um, uh, then you, you, you sort of resurrect that memory and then um, narratively the mind goes on to kind of work through it. And, um, and, and so, uh, you know, each level is a different client and they're all very intense because again, they have to do with uh, themes of trauma and PTSD. Um, and so while you're playing it, if you happen to be playing with one of the supported sensor technologies that Nevermind um, is integrated with, the game can tell how scared or stressed you get um, as you're playing it. And the more scared or stressed or anxious the game thinks you are, the more punishing the game becomes. So you have to really learn how to approach these very uncomfortable, very intense situations and keep your cool to, to recognize when you're starting to get scared, starting to get stressed and learn how to counter that and and stay calm. Um, otherwise the game becomes almost unplayable if you let your stress kind of take over. And so in this way we say it's sort of like a stress management tool disguised as a video game. So anyway, so it was a big ambitious project. We spent um, a, an academic year working on it to see if we could even prove it out. We built a, a single level version of it um, that incorporated the biofeedback that had narrative elements in it um, and really showed that 
something like this is possible. And, and, and that was great. That was amazing that, um, that, that, uh, we, we got as far as we did and, you know, very grateful to the incredibly talented team. Um, I had, um, at USC, we had a collaborative, a collaboration between, uh, cinema students, engineering students, um, electrical engineering students, um, music students, um, and, and our thesis advisors who really kind of helped us sort of take on this ambition and make it happen. Um, we got to the end of the academic year and as one often does, uh, we all graduated. And so the team kind of split up and went on their own ways. And I actually um, had already taken a job elsewhere in the industry. So it was sort of like a, I'm glad we did this, but now we're moving on. That's the end of Nevermind. Or so I thought. Uh, about a year later, um, you know, I couldn't stop thinking about Nevermind and, and potential there. Like, what if we took it further? Um, and I was really encouraged by a lot of the positive attention I got from um, various festivals and, and, and people learning about it and reaching out about it. Um, and so I decided to leave my job and start Flying Mollusk to make a studio basically that's focused around these games, these edgy games for good. Um, and starting with, let's take Nevermind, let's take Students Project and rebuild it out in a way that we can release um, publicly and commercially and make it something that's a much bigger game um, that you know, several people can play and hopefully enjoy and, and hopefully benefit from. Um, so that's a very long journey of how <laughs> Nevermind came to be. Um, and uh, yeah, here we are now. Yeah, that's... Um... So you not only went from being a student to working, but you also went from being gainfully employed to founding your indie studio, which is kind of like a double step in the scary direction, you know? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so when, when founding Flying Mollusk and making the decision to do this, how did you deal with that kind of the self-doubt? I mean, also, you said you've been getting a lot of positive feedback in school and at festivals, but you know, you're never exactly sure if this positive feedback from this very interested select group of people who probably have an increased interest in these weird kind of games would translate over into mass appeal. So how did you deal with that? Yeah, that's a very good question. It was definitely terrifying <laughs> to, to kind of leave this great job that I loved um, to, to dive into the complete unknown especially given the fact that, you know, my background, my original background is in fine arts um, and, and game design, so a lot on the creative side. Um, but I've never really had much interest, admittedly, in the business side. So here I am now starting a business with no real business background, uh, so basically having no idea what I'm doing. And, yeah, being unsure as of, uh, you know, to just, like, do a few people think this is cool, or is this something that I can actually turn into something bigger? Can I actually realize this vision? Is there enough interest actually there? Um, so, yeah, I kind of just had to, you know, take a deep breath and dive right into it and see what happens, you know, and kind of take a leap of faith. And, um, uh, you, you know, the, I, I, it, the whole time I had a gut feeling that this is, this is what I really wanted to do. This was the right path for me. I knew that making edgy games for good is really kind of, you know, my jam. And so it, in some ways, even though it was terrifying and even though I felt many times I had no business doing this, it also felt like this is absolutely the right path to take. And so there was still sort of this underlying confidence of, I don't know where this is going to take me, but I know it's going in the right direction. Let's just try it and see where it goes. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that kind of helped get me through sort of the, 
the most uh, nerve-wracking moments of it. And even to this day, you know, there's still plenty of times where I'm like, what am I even doing? <laughs> you know? I think that's just sort of the nature of, of you know, indie life. And uh, you just you just have to kind of have this outlook of, you know, I'm doing what, what I love. I'm doing what I, I, you know, I'm following my weird interests. And, and uh, you just have to kind of hope for the best and be game to kind of, uh, you know, take it as it, as it comes and as it unfolds. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things I got from your previous, uh, so one of the things I got from your previous spiel is that these peripherals were integral into what you were uh, trying to do with this kind of uh, exploration of the potential of games. Yet when developing Nevermind, you have to be aware of the fact that most people in the general market aren't going to have access to biofeedback sensors or this technology. So from a development standpoint, how did you go about uh, kind of balancing your desire to integrate this interesting technology with the knowledge that a vast majority of your audience wouldn't have access to it? Yeah, that's a, a really interesting question. Um, and even just to step it back even further than that, when we first started the student version of Nevermind, um, it was really before um, a lot of the wearables that we have today, like Fitbit, Apple Watch, that kind of stuff was um, even a twinkle in some entrepreneur's eye, you know. Mm -hmm. So there was a question of, are people going to even be comfortable with a game or any technology looking at their biofeedback data, their heart rate data, um, specifically in the case of Nevermind? You know, there's a big question of, is this going to be crossing a boundary that people are just not going to have any interest in? Um, and so, you know, it was definitely a, a big risk that we were aware of from the get-go. Um, I mean, fortunately, you know, uh, time has shown that not only do people, um, you know, embrace sort of this, uh, uh, what's the right word I'm looking for? Not collaboration, but, um, you know, this, this, the, I guess, sort of the insight that they can gain when you combine technology with biofeedback, you know, whether it's through, again, like a Fitbit or Apple Watch or, you know, being able to, um, having better understanding of what's going on internally through a lot of sophisticated technology that seems to have become very popular and, and people have really embraced that. And so that's that's been great. Um, in terms of Nevermind, um, you know, we when we started, when we took it from the student version to the uh, main commercial version, um, with this in mind, we, we wanted to really focus on trying to support as many devices uh, uh, as possible that people may already have, so that people wouldn't have to go out and buy, you know, a new hardware device just to play Nevermind. So the idea was, you know, if you have an Apple Watch, great, Nevermind will work with your Apple Watch, no problem. Um, do you have a, a Polar uh, H7 chest uh, strap, you know, and because and, uh, a lot of people uh, might have that for, you know, working out um, or exercise, you know, great, you know, it'll work with that. So, um, so we tried to support as many devices as possible to make sure that it's something that people would have access to, um, as well as uh, we later in development, we partnered with this, um, this great company called Affectiva, um, who has this very cool technology that can um, read uh, emotion data based on, um, based on just, you know, microfacial movements um, that the game can pick up on through the webcam. Um, which is very cool. And so that's something that also made it even more accessible is that you can play Nevermind and get the um, the responsiveness 
if you have a webcam, which a lot of people do nowadays. So, um, you know, that, that we really tried to mitigate that risk by just trying to make it as accessible as possible um, with technology that people would hopefully or possibly already have on hand. Um, and then worst case, you know, if you play Nevermind without any of the supported technology, because there's still a lot of people who don't have any of those devices we support or technologies that we support, um, it's still just, a, you know, a, a well, hopefully <laughs> a fun, um, you know, adventure thriller game. And you can still get sort of the, the gameplay experience from it. Um, you know, still a good chance to, or still a good opportunity to, um, you know, uh, test yourself to see if you can face one of these intense situations and get through them. You just won't have the the um, real time responsiveness um, on top of it. Yeah, one of the things I noticed about Nevermind when playing through it again for the pod is that uh, the, the the way that you craft scares is different than a lot of other modern horror games. So a lot of modern horror games are the haunted house simulator where all of a sudden something jumps out at you. But Nevermind is much more about of a persistent building of tension over over time. <laughs> And uh, kind of how did you go about, because you're trying to elicit various different emotional responses, building of tension from the player, how did you go about crafting those? What was your design mentality when creating the scares and the, the, the tense atmosphere of Nevermind? Yeah, um, so part of it was uh, just the fact that, personally, I, I like that, that type of horror, that very surreal, psychological, um, high... Uh, uh, like high anticipation <laughs> kind of horror, you know? Um, and so I think just sort of my own personal aesthetic sort of sort of oozed into the game um, to some extent. But um, also a lot of that was driven by, um, you know, our, our desire to create an experience that would help people better um, manage their fear and stress in everyday situations. So, you know, we, we didn't want to create a scenario where people are desensitized to situations where a shot of adrenaline, a shot of anxiety is, is probably a good thing, like a zombie jumping out at you. If a zombie jumps out at you, you probably want to have that uh, fight or flight kick in, you know? So um, it's more, um, we wanted to create experiences that um, are, are more all about, like, I know that there's something probably really unsettling behind that door, and I really don't want to have to open that door but I'm going to have to if I want to move forward. And in that way, it's almost a reflection of those everyday moments that we face where let's say I have a job interview and I know that I really don't want to have to go into that job interview because it's going to be stressful. It's going to be intense. You know, no one really has a good time on a job interview, but I'm going to have to do it anyway, no matter how stressed I am, because I really want to progress forward. So I'm going to have to learn how to and go through that door and uh, um, and, and do it anyway, you know, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, uh, it definitely makes sense. So, excellent. So, so that was really kind of sort of our thinking behind it. And then, you know, horror is so personal. Um, you, you know, it's really not one size fits all by any means. We all respond to different things in different ways. And so we wanted to create um, experiences that knowing that not everyone's going to respond to everything in the way that we intend so we really wanted to kind of create a lot of um different scenarios with the hope that at least um you know uh, someone playing it would encounter something that affects them at some point in the game um mm -hmm. yeah. i got a question i mean what struck me as never mind is that you you doubled down on two super risky things not only did you make it uh, a game with a peripheral hardware, 
you also made it a game with a heart rate monitor. Uh, making a VR game that also required a heart rate monitor, that's, that's, that takes a lot of the bravery to do. What, what was the, uh, the VR design decisions like? That, that's, that's, that's what I want to ask you. Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting question. Um, so, I mean, when we first started Nevermind as a student project, VR wasn't really uh, uh, in the picture because, um, I mean, it was even before the Oculus Rift was was a thing, you know, and so consumer-based VR was still a thing of the of the future. So it wasn't even in the back of our heads when we first started thinking about like the about feedback and and sort of the the initial infrastructure of the game. Um, but then when we returned to it um, through Flying Mollusk, VR had started to, to pick up, and and you know Nevermind is inherently a, a very immersive game. Um, we, we built it to be very um, intense, but also very beautiful and very visually um, uh, effective. Uh, and so in this way, you know, VR just seemed like such a great fit for it. Um, and, uh, we, we, yeah, we're just so enamored by all the possibilities there. We're like, okay, we need to make this happen somehow. Um, and so, uh, we were fortunate enough to be able to have the opportunity to, to do that. And, um, you're right. Having the biofeedback and the VR is, uh, it's, it's a lot of tech to, to expect a player to have and to, to wear, um, it, it is a very cool experience, like having your whole, like while playing Nevermind with the biofeedback, um, like one of the heart rate monitors and with the VR headset on, it's like having the whole adapt to how you're feeling and responding to you know, these internal signals is such a tricky, but it's a really interesting experience. Um, and I think there's really a lot more there that, that I think, you know, in our future games, um, I want to explore even further. But as of right now, with the limits of the technology, you are wearing you are wearing a lot of things. There's a lot of wires hooked up to you at the time, so it's not necessarily the most comfortable experience right now. Um, but I think it's something where I'm really optimistic by what I've seen so far, and as the technology continues to evolve, both in terms of the uh, VR uh, hardware and uh, biofeedback hardware, I think we're going to get to a point, I hope we're going to get to a point where both technologies are, are far more seamless than they are now. Um, and it, it almost, you know, the dream for me is to have a headset that can pick up on biometrics just inherently, you know, whether it's through the face or maybe through the controller, um, something like that. I, I think I, I think that's where we're headed, and I think there's going to be a lot of cool stuff um, once we get there. I did want to ask where you thought both uh, those uh, industries were moving into. I mean, biofeedback... Every cell phone now has like a heart rate tracker, um, a movement tracker, and stuff like that. And uh, the medical industry is like gonna blow up with all this data. VR uh, just released a bunch of new headsets. I'm super excited about them, uh, and I'm hoping that consumers are as well. What's your hot take on both of those fields? Oof, that's a <laughs> that's a very uh, uh, it's a great question and, and one that I have a lot of thoughts on. Um, I'll try to keep them short. Otherwise, we'll be here. Um, forever. Um, for biofeedback, yes. I, I, I'm biased. Um, obviously, I believe, um, I really believe in, in biofeedback and potential for biofeedback um, quite a bit. Um, to me, it seems like it's, it's an inevitability um, in a good way. Uh, you know, I think having technology that understands you um, at, at a level, like at a physiological level, 
can lead to so many um, beneficial outcomes. You know, I, especially as it pertains to gaming, both in terms of like the gaming experience. So imagine a game that can tell when you're getting frustrated um, or you're getting bored and adapting dynamically to that to kind of keep the game interesting to you personally. Um, instead of sort of just having the game designers guess like, well, we think this level is at a at a good difficulty. You know, that's different for everyone. And 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 so I think a game that can respond dynamically, um, it just it just makes so much sense. And the technology is there. But I think once developers start to cap uh, catch on to it, um, we'll see it more and more. Um, and then of course you you know bring that into games that try to help you on a therapeutic level, kind of more um, in the direction that you know Nevermind's going. Um, I think there's lots of opportunity there as well. Um, you know, honestly. I, I think things are trending in that direction a little more slowly than um, I would like. I think one major hurdle is, um, I think there's two major hurdles right now. Um, one is the hardware manufacturers, the heart rate manufacturers, or heart rate, you know, wearable devices, um, still are thinking about uh, their trackers just in terms of fitness. Um, I remember there was a CES I went to um, uh, a few years ago, and CES is for those who don't know, it's like a giant um, expo for, you know, technology manufacturers. Um, and I went there to kind of meet, you know, all the people working in the heart rate space and biofeedback space. And so many of them, when I explained to them what we were trying to do with Nevermind and kind of my vision for games and biofeedback, their eyes would just sort of gloss over. And they're like, what do you mean that people would want to use this for anything other than fitness tracking? <laughs> you know, so I think there's there's still sort of this conceptual boundary we need to get through, and, and we will. It's just it's taking a little bit longer. Um, than, well, uh, interesting, isn't it? Like, they're never going to fund anything until something breaks that boundary. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think as soon as something does, it's just going to, that's going to be such a huge turning point. Um, we'll think back at the time when everything didn't have biofeedback and wonder how, you know, how we ever got anything done, you know. Um, and I think the other end of it is too, it's like on developers' side as well. I think so many developers um, don't realize that this this technology is here for us to integrate. Um, and it's not, uh, you know, it's not as futuristic or as sci-fi as many people think as well. So I think it's just a matter of, you know, just kind of a matter of awareness, you know, but it will get there. Um, and then in terms of VR, you know, I think uh, that's a really interesting space to watch, you know, as the technology becomes more advanced and, and more affordable, you know, I think more and more people are going to become more comfortable with it and, and be able to have more access to it. You know, in the early days, it was, it was very expensive, so it could be very prohibitive, which, you know, kind of slowed the adoption, but I think that's changing, you know, especially also with the advancement of AR, too, you know, that gets more people kind of thinking about how can we use this? not only in gaming, but in our day-to-day, -day, you know, and I think, again, that's going to open more uh, opportunity for successes, which will then also open up more opportunity for funding, which then just kind of will expedite things. So, you know, it's all coming. It's just, you know, it's it takes a little bit of patience to, to uh, you know, for a revolution to, to take place, you know. I wanted to also ask about, like, ideas about Nevermind as a franchise, because the idea of it, of being sort of like a psychologist who literally dives into the mind and psychonaut style sees reality in their vision and then has to, like, untangle it, is so cool because it opens up so many different possibilities, so many different set pieces, so many character explorations. I, I mean, like, Silent Hill is, is kind of the same kind of thing, and people love that. And Silent Hill has not really been up to par. 
So this idea of being in a horrific world that is like melded by people's psyches is such a cool thing that I want to see more of. Do you? I mean, uh, no sequel announcements or anything like that. Do you have more ideas for Nevermind? Well, first, thank you very much. That's very sweet of you to say. I appreciate that. Um, and yeah, I mean, Nevermind was designed to intentionally be very modular and, and to add more content. So each level is a, is a new client, it's a new trauma story. So the idea was always to keep adding these new stories uh, to the game, either through DLC or, or um, other means. And we have so many ideas for um, additional levels we want to add. Um, you know, quite frankly, that the biggest challenge is just getting the resources um, because every level is so different and so unique in, in and of itself that they're very expensive and, and timely to build, especially for a small indie team like ours. You know, at our, our biggest, um, our team was about four people uh, full time working on it. So, you know, it takes a lot to make it happen and um, uh, and a lot of money to make it happen. So it's definitely something that's continually on our, our radar of how can we continue the Nevermind story further and expand it further um, because there is a lot more that we we want to show and, and, and um, release. Um, but it's just a matter of, um, you know, once once we get the resources to do it, there'll definitely be more. I don't know when that will be, but, um, but it's something we definitely want to do. I'm looking forward to it. I think that's all the questions I got. Uh, I have a question. So the game went through two Kickstars, originally at 250k, and I don't think it met that goal. And then it decided to re-kickstart at 75k and met that goal. Um, I was wondering, what what would you have had in the uh, in the full version of the game? Um, so the 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 Kickstarter, the crowdfunding journey, never mind, is really interesting. Um, not a lot of people know this, but we actually ran four crowdfunding campaigns for Nevermind throughout the course of its life, uh, life cycle. Um, and uh, the first two were some Indiegogo campaigns that were we ran when it was still basically a student project. And then we had the, um, the big Kickstarter campaign that we launched uh, right after I founded Flying Balls, because our original plan was for that to be how we would fund development. And so. Um, you know, to, to make a game like that, it requires a lot of money. So we had this big, ambitious Kickstarter campaign. And, um, you know, we were so close to, to it being successful, but didn't quite get there. Um, but I think what's interesting about this, and I, I like telling the story because I think it goes to show um, kind of the attitude that you have to have when making indie games is that just because a door closes doesn't mean that the whole operation is closed. Um, it's, it's uh, it, it, you know, there's so many opportunities that you don't even know that are out there. Like you don't even know that you don't know are out there. And so in our case, um, even though the Kickstarter didn't get funded, um, Intel discovered Nevermind and Flying Balls through that Kickstarter because, you know, we were trying to spread the word. And, and so people were learning about Nevermind for the first time through it. And at that point in time, they were working on this technology, which was then top secret called the, the Real Sense camera, which is this amazing piece of tech that can um, get heart rate based on infrared um, uh, capabilities that it has. And, um, and so therefore, it's like a seamless way of getting heart rate without having to wear anything um, additional. And, um, and and it can do other things too, uh, but for you know our purposes, you can see the connection there. And so they reached out to us and said, you know, hey, we're building this technology. Nevermind seems like it would be a great fit for it. Do you want to like work with us on this? Um, you know, we can, we can 
um, help, you know, give you a little bit of funding to, to make the game. Um, and we're like, well, that sounds amazing because the technology in and of itself sounds like such an ideal fit, never mind. And, and, um, and it really it helped us get started on making the game. And, uh, and, and through that, you know, working with, you know, some of the engineers and the experts at Intel as well, we got some amazing feedback and insight that we wouldn't have had the Kickstarter gone through, had we never met them. So it was sort of this, it worked out even better, um, given that the, like the Kickstarter failing was like one of the best things that happened to Nevermind. So it's a really good kind of tale and, you know, um, you never know how things are going to turn out and when things look like, what looks like it could be bad news might actually be good news. Um, you just don't know it yet. Um, and then uh, then we ran that second Kickstarter, um, the 75,001, um, uh, and um, that was just to kind of cover the um, parts of the game that we, we knew we wanted to make that, um, uh, you know, wasn't covered under our, our deal with Intel. So things like VR, things like Mac, that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, and that was a lot, that was, you know, that was successfully funded. Many thanks to all of our backers um, who made that happen. And uh, we were able to, you know, sort of create the, the full vision that we had for Nevermind, um, uh, you know, through that. So uh, just a personal question, in the Reliquary of Fears or whatever that thing is called, uh, what, how did you, is that for your backers or the developers or what? And for the backers. So one of the backer rewards we had was the Reliquary of Fears. Actually, there are developers in there. So we had like, you know, a, um, uh, uh, sort of a statue that is dedicated to the fears of either our backers. And then we also had our developers had fears in there as well. Um, so if you want to see what, uh, what keeps us up at night, that's, uh, that's a good way to kind of figure it out. Um, also, uh, in the uh, when you first start the game, um, as you're going through the Neurostalgia Institute, you'll see um, these glass cases that have awards and articles and um, you know pieces about the Neurostalgia Institute, which is where you you know fictionally work. Um, but not only introduce, um, start introducing what the institute's all about, but also um, a lot of our actors are featured in that as well. I know when some people play, I've, I've seen Let's play, Plays where people are walking through it and they think that's the entire development team. Like we had a team of like 50 people, which is flattering. But mm -hmm. <laughs> just set the record straight, but that's, uh, um, those are almost all of our, um, um, our, our wonderful backers. Yeah, that's actually what's going to be my next question is where did you, like the doctor names and stuff? I was wondering if that was the names of your team or the names of the backers. It's all the names of the backers. So yeah. the team is like actually not really featured that much in the game. Um, we have some fears in the reliquary. And then if you go into uh, one of our bonus um, areas that's unlocked when you basically um, get through all the levels, there's a, a room um, where you can flip tables. <laughs> and it's just a place where you can like de-stress a little bit, especially after a really intense like level. Um, you can just go there and kind of um, recalibrate. And so there's a room in there where everyone has sort of like an oil painting, um, everyone on the team. So you can find us there as well. Which, but, which was uh, your fear in the Reliquary? I think I went with spiders. Fine. Mm. Uh, I, I have a lot of fears, uh, but I think we went with spiders because, I mean, spiders are, are the worst. So, you know. <laughs> I'm like the only person I know that isn't scared of spiders. Everyone's scared of spiders, but I just, I, I don't know. They just don't, they don't creep me out. But then again, I'm, I don't really feel a whole lot about anything. So, uh, <laughs> you're really into this idea of games for good. If you were going to create a game for evil, what would it be? Ooh. 
Good question. Oh, that's an interesting question. I don't think I've gotten that one yet. Probably a mobile a game. game for... <laughs> I don't know. I don't think I've given a lot of thought to uh, games for Evolve. Uh, I think, uh, I don't know, I'd have to think about that some more. That's kind of a fun thing to think about. Uh, I mean, because like, my, my whole thing is that any game could be a game for good without like making it dedicated to a game for good. Like it doesn't have to be Oregon Trail um, for it to be a game for good. Um, so you know, I kind of tend to see see most games with sort of an optimistic uh, perspective. So a game for evil is a uh, oh man, I have to yeah, I have to I have to meditate on this. That's a good question. It would just it would just be an interactive. Infowars simulator, where you listen to uh, conspiracy theories and talking about how global warming isn't happening and uh, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think that would probably be a pretty effective game for <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Oof. Yeah. Well, on the on on that positive note, does anyone else have any more questions before we uh, close it out? What games have you been playing, Aaron? Oh, that's a good question. So I also have been playing Borderlands 3 nice. um, as Fucking best nerd. I can. Um, Who are you playing as? <laughs> uh, I'm playing as Flack. Uh, good choice. So the, the beast. Yeah, thank you. What, uh, um, what, but, what pet are you taking with you? Sorry to interrogate you on Borderlands. No, it's, it's good. Um, so right now I have a SCAD, um, so I'm going with that. But I haven't gone too far into it because of... Uh, you know, a lot of the reasons that were mentioned before, um, like I love Borderlands, I love Borderlands 1, Borderlands 2, they're some of my favorite games, and um, I, I usually play with my husband through the couch co-op play, but with Borderlands 3, now that they have the horizontal split screen, um, it's so hard, like I'm like having to play like standing three inches away from my screen looking like Mr. Magoo, I was you know, just trying saying to like that. read the UI. Yeah, exactly, I know you said that. trying to read the microscopic text. So like I'm I'm I've been so excited about Borderlands three for so long and now I'm I'm I may have to just wait until hopefully that's patched because it's it's really it's uh I can I can start to feel my age when I look at it or it's like I just can't read this. Um so hopefully it'll be it'll be patched in. But um I mean I with like Apple Arcade coming out now, like there's there's like so many good games now that like I think you know, while I'm waiting for that patch, I'm looking forward to playing things like, um, you know, Where Cards Fall and Neocab. Like, a lot of really interesting, beautiful games are now, like, just, like, fell on our lap last week. So, I'm, you know, I have a, a full plate of, uh, of things to test out that I'm really excited about. So, um, so we'll see. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I, uh, am really, I, I like. I like Borderlands 3 so far, but I may just have to put it on pause until that's fixed. Yeah, I feel that. So, um, yeah, before we close it out, do you uh, have anything you want to pitch? Any new projects coming up? Or, you know, just tell people where they can find Nevermind? Yeah, um, so we are working on a new project, um, which is not to say that, you know, Nevermind is closed out. We still want to expand that. But in the meantime, we also have um, a really... Uh, well, I'm I'm very excited about it. Uh, uh, exciting game that um, we're working on, which is very, very, very early phase. So um, it's so early that, uh, that there's not really too many details I want to share just yet. But um, as soon as we're ready to, we'll be 
um, sharing uh, more about it hopefully before too long. Um, so, and uh, if you want to, if anyone wants to, to you know, uh, be in the know as soon as we announce, you can go to flyingmosque.com. We have a mailing list there. Or you can follow us on Facebook or Instagram or, you know, all the, all the stuff that all the cool kids um, interact with these days. And, um, and then, yeah, never mind, you can find on um, uh, Steam, um, you know, Humble Store, um, Oculus, uh, um, and Xbox One as well. The Xbox One doesn't have the biofeedback um, capabilities in it. It's just sort of a more traditional game on that platform. So, um, yeah, that's uh, where you can find us and reach out to us at any time. And, um, yeah, and as a as a reviewer myself, I will say that Nevermind definitely holds up even without the biofeedback sensors. Very, very solid horror game if you're looking for a, a horror game from a few years ago that you might have missed. Uh, anyways, thank you. I want to thank all of our lovely people that cut that work to bring this podcast together. I want to thank Aaron Reynolds from Flying Mollusk for being on today and talking to us about Nevermind. I also want to thank Alex Ontero, who's DJ Extract, for providing us the lovely music for the episode. Next week, we're going to be talking to the developers of Never, Ever, sorry, Everspace 2 about their uh, Kickstarter campaign, what they're looking to do with that game. Once again, I want to thank uh, our lovely hosts, Jesse. Hi. And uh, Remy over here. Yo! And uh, thank you once again for turning into the Real Professional Podcast. And we will see you next week. Bye. This podcast is dedicated to the brave Mujahideen fighters. (laughs) Thank you. At the State Department, the infamous seventh floor, where they protect Hillary. Gentlemen, even though uh, Hillary Clinton is no longer Secretary of State, nor is she the president. You have any idea? She's still eating babies with John Podesta. Do you know if she's still protected in that manner, gentlemen? Sir, is Hillary Clinton still eating babies? All right, we'll take the silence as a no.